Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I am the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to say we have Meili Chai on the show, and we'll be talking about her new collection of short stories, Tomorrow in Shanghai, and other stories, and it was published just this year. Meili, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, Sure. Um, I graduated from Grinnell College, class of 1989, and then I went on a Grinnell College fellowship to Nanjing, China, um, and I taught at a local middle school there. And um, I'd also gone on a study abroad program when I was at Grinnell to China. My father's family is from Nanjing. So it's, it was so wonderful that Grinnell had started this fellowship. It was, just, it was um, a wonderful coincidence that it was just beginning as I started at Grinnell, and it happened to have like this deep family connection for me. Yeah, that's very cool. I, I was sent to Russia from oh, Grinnell. Russia. <laughs> China would have been better, I think. But can you tell us a little bit about um, your, uh, your background, where you're from, and that kind of stuff? Sure. Um, well, I start with the Grinnell background. We have to start with the most important things first, right? Um, but my personal background, I was born in California. My family moved around a lot. We um, also lived in the New York City metropolitan area when I was a kid. And then we moved to rural South Dakota when I was 12. Um, and then after Grinnell, I've, I started working for the Associated Press as a reporter. Um, and then I changed my careers and I uh, went to grad school and began studying East Asian studies and I ultimately went into creative writing as a field. Uh, Tomorrow in Shanghai is my 11th book. Wow. <laughs> wow. Let's just say wow. <laughs> and I've um, published novels. I write short stories. I've written narrative nonfiction um, and memoir. And so I like, I like, and I also in a, in a work of literary translation. Really? So you've lived a lot of places. You're like me, peripatetic. <laughs> yes. I, I, I've lived in like, mm, I don't know, 10 states and several foreign countries. I've lived in 15 states and four countries. So yeah, yeah. that's a lot. That's a lot of experience. So you, you probably know America pretty darn well. <laughs> I know different parts of America. I think I know some of the out of the way parts of America pretty well. Uh, but that that's more interesting, right? <laughs> Right. So how did you get to Grinnell from South Dakota? Is that right? Yeah. I was looking for a very liberal, liberal arts college. Um, my experience in South Dakota was not a happy one. Um, you know, it, we, we faced a lot of, uh, just frankly speaking, racist violence when I was living there in the uh, early 1980s. Um, my father's Chinese, my mother is white, and people in the community did not like mixed race marriages. Uh-huh. And they also thought that when people of different races had children, that the children were what the devil intended for Earth, <laughs> is what people actually would say to my face. They, you know, God had put the races on separate continents deliberately to keep them separate. And um, so, you know, people, there were white people who would just come up to us on the street and shout racial slurs at us. Um, people sh- shot at our house. They killed five of our dogs, shot them in front of the house and just left their bodies there. It was really horrible. So when the t- you know when I started looking for colleges, I really, really, really wanted a liberal liberal arts college. And um, 
I didn't have um, much money. I was going to be totally uh, financing my college from by myself. And so one, there was need blind admission at Grinnell. Plus it had excellent academic, um, you know, reputation. Plus the people in the town had heard of Grinnell and they spoke about it with just like horror. And because the, they remembered that Grinnell had been shut down for, but you remember that for like two years during the Vietnam War era? Yeah, and six, 69, of, 70, it was shut down, could, I think. Yeah. They could still remember that in this town. Yeah. Um, and they, um, they said, oh, that was Grinnell at Grinnell. Oh, you know, they had to shut down their school because those hippies. And I thought, <laughs> okay, that sounds like a good school. And so I looked into it and I decided to apply early admission. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, that's a it's a it's a well, part of it is a tragic story, but part of it is a wonderful story. Um, I'm from Kansas originally, so I know a little bit about what you're talking about in terms of let's just call it the attitudes involved in parts of the Midwest, not all of the Midwest. Uh, what was your experience like at Grinnell, though? Grinnell itself, the college? You know, I think that Cornell, especially in the years that I was there and I wouldn't know about the years that I wasn't there, but especially in the years that I was there, I felt like it attracted a lot of students who had felt like outsiders in their home communities and they had been attracted to Grinnell for similar reasons because it was this this kind of beacon for the smart kids in you know in various towns and communities where being the smart kid wasn't uh, valued in various high schools. Someone had said, you know, a parent had said that everyone at Grinnell had been bullied, probably. <laughs> Not only was everyone, but there were certainly yeah. quite a few of us. And I felt like that was a good fit for me. I felt like students, for the most part, that I got to know were kind and also very open-minded and were really very academically inclined, but in a very free-spirited way, right? I think it gets people who are looking to forge their own paths. And I thought that fit, that I could fit in with that. Yeah, I, I didn't know as much about Grinnell when I got there. I really went there to play basketball. Um, and I, I was not bullied, as I recall. Um, but my experience was very similar in the sense that I met people who were very serious students. And obviously, the faculty was just great. And I met my mentor there. And I went on to become essentially, I will call it a clone, but I, I worked in the same topic as my mentor. Dan Kaiser was my mentor there. Oh, um, cool. And uh, it kind of set me on the path to becoming an academic. And then I spent uh, years and years as a professor at the University of Iowa. Uh, oh, wow. So, just down the just down the Highway yeah, 80. Yeah, just down Highway 80. That's right. So I, I know Iowa pretty well. But my experience at Grinnell was really wonderful. And um you know, I'm very honored to be able to do this podcast for them because I owe them a lot. And I should also say about the need blind admissions part, they essentially paid for my schooling. So uh, that that's very nice of them. It's very nice of them. And it's rare. And it's, um, I mean, that was why it was also a beacon because a lot of schools don't have that. And so if you don't come from generational wealth, um, if you don't have families that can contribute or will contribute, it can be really hard to get a stellar education. And I felt like I got a world-class education. I did too. Know. And I, I remember a meeting that I had um, at the end of my, I guess it was my second semester and I, coming back, I had with a financial aid officer and I said, I just can't afford this. And she said, Marshall, we'll take care of that. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days, right? Those were the days. Oh. I'm like, really? And I was like, yep. And I was like, that's great. 
<laughs> glad to hear that. So I'm always glad to give something back to the college. So you started your career as a journalist and you uh, became a writer. I'm very interested in that transition. Can you talk a little bit about it? Sure. Well, I started off as um, a journalist uh, for the Associated Press. And that was great experience um, for news gathering. I mean, I was a writer, but writing mostly short spot news um, stories, which is like under 750 words. And you write a lot of them. I remember one shift, I wrote 20 different stories in a four hour period of time. Um, you know, you're just wow. constantly banging out, you know, news and <laughs> writing it up in as fast as I could type. Um, and like once a month, you're allowed to do an what they call an enterprise story, which is a feature, but you kind of have to spend most of your quote unquote free time to do the interview. So I was working 12 to 15 hour days. And then I would, you know, on the one day be given actual time to finish writing the feature and feature writing is more interesting to me than the spot news. And um, finally, there was a gang story that I was covering, looking at um, Southeast Asian gangs that had been um, in uh, targeting businesses owned by the Southeast Asian community in Denver. And I had spoken to so many people in the community and they said this was a real problem. They were all being hit up for quote unquote protection money. What that means is basically extortion money from the gangs. And I had worked with um, like the one member of the Denver police department who was assigned to Asian gangs. And it was, a you know, he had volunteered to do this. And it was working so, so, so hard. And I put out the story on the wire and it and none of the local papers picked it up because they thought, eh, you know, we don't have a problem with this. And then the gangs hit during the Tet Lunar New Year Festival, and there was a shootout, and um, an, a 70-something-year-old Vietnamese man was injured, and he ended up like having to have his leg amputated. And eventually the police captured the gang. But I thought, you know, what is the point of working so hard? And then after that, of course, after that, then there were no stories on it, so they all but, oh, wait, there was this AP story about gangs. And so they, I made the front page, but it was like too late to do any good. And I felt, what am I wasting my life for? I'm, I'm so exhausted. I'm working such long hours, basically six, seven days a week. Um, you don't get two days off in a row in the AP. So um, it was just brutal. And I thought, you know, I'm just covering news after the fact. And I was Found what was more interesting to me is the whys. Why does this happen? What is what is causing people to behave in certain ways rather than the like a short story on a like a short spot piece on a on an actual crime? So then I decided to go back to grad school, and um, I went to Yale and got a, a master's degree in East Asian studies because what I really wanted to write was about China and about the Chinese diaspora. And I felt like I needed to get more information and do more research. And, um, and while I was at, I was originally going to go for a PhD. And while I was at Yale, um, I found a lump and the lump, um, in my breast grew from the size of a pea to the size of a walnut over the course of basically like a semester. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had been accepted into a PhD program at a prestigious school, full fellowship, but they wouldn't let me like miss the first semester. Um, otherwise I wouldn't be able to keep my fellowship, but I really thought like, man, I really need to get this health thing taken care of. I need to get this, you know, this growing tumor taken out. I wasn't sure if I would be able to like pop right back and go to school. And so they wouldn't let me defer. And so I just had this, um, kind of life-changing moment when I thought, you know, I could, I could die. 
I could die before I ever pursue this dream right. of writing a book and writing a novel. And, you know, and so I ended up applying uh, to, a, to a creative writing program, one I could find in Colorado that still, you know, the deadline is not completely over. I could get my application in and I got in. And I got a fellowship and, and then, so I spent the summer, got my, had my surgery and it turned out to be not cancer. And so I could start afresh in a creative writing program and just really pursue the dream. But I didn't dare to pursue that dream until I literally was faced with potential, potentially dying first. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my, my message to people is if you have a dream, you know, pursue it, <laughs> yeah. don't put it off. Don't keep deferring. Um, because it, you know, you never know how long we have. Yeah, there are a couple of interesting things you've said. Uh, one is about Southeast Asian gangs, actually, because I, I don't think many people know this, and we're going to talk about Asian Americans pretty quick. When I was in high school, um, this was in the late seventies. Uh, suddenly, there were all these Vietnamese students. They were boat people. I, of course, didn't know this, being a clueless jock in Kansas. Um, and there's actually quite a sizable Vietnamese community in Wichita, believe it or not. Oh, I know, um, because there was a sizable Southeast Asian. It was Cambodian, Laotian, and Vietnamese in the 80s in Grinnell. In Grinnell. Really? Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, that's right. And I don't think many people know this because they think of the, you know, of the Midwest as being extraordinarily homogenous, which in many ways it is more homogenous than other places. But I remember this very well. These Vietnamese students showed up, actually played soccer with some of them. Um, so... Let's talk a little bit about the book, Tomorrow in Shanghai. Um, how did you come to write it? Um, well, I, I write short stories just in general. And so I had been started writing. I just am always writing something. And so I was writing short stories and publishing short stories. And then my publisher wanted um, another book from me. I had published a previous short story collection with, with my publisher, Blair, called Useful Phrases for Immigrants. And it won the American Book Award. And then, you know, they came to me and said, well, do I have, you know, another book? They would they would like to publish something. And so I had suggested another short story collection. And so I um, put together, you know, a proposal and I put together some of the stories I had published and I, you know, proposed writing some more and they, they wanted to publish it. So that's how that kind of comes together at this stage in my career, I didn't have to pitch it to anybody. Well, that's very um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it took and a long it, time to get there. Let's say that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's not this like they just 11, happened. So. Yeah. Right. It didn't just happen. Um, and the collection this time was inspired by, frankly speaking, the events um, going on in, in the world and in the United States since the election of Donald Trump. And many of the stories were inspired by the kind of violent rhetoric Um uh, the anti-immigrant rhetoric, the xenophobia, and also, frankly speaking, the anti-Chinese rhetoric. You know, he was saying he's always positing China as an enemy of the United States. Oh, they're raping us. China, China, China. He's blaming China. And then, of course, then when the pandemic hit, all across the United States, Asian Americans were targeted and Asian travelers were targeted for violence because people blamed um, Asians for the pandemic as opposed to the non-response you know, uh, when the pandemic first started um, being identified around the world. Um, so although none of the stories in the collection is set in the present moment, they're all in some ways reflecting this kind of feelings of potential violence. But I wanted to show it from a Chinese and Chinese 
American and Chinese diasporic perspective. So, Mm -hmm. and I'm showing the kind of how the violence of the present is rooted in the past and global competition and, um, and kind of xenophobia. And then I want to show hope. I don't want to just like, I don't want to like repeat violent tropes and, you know, stir people up in a, in a, in a way that's really negative. I wanted to show resilience and hopefulness. And so I show characters dealing with this and kind of working it out in their own lives and in their families. And then in the final story is actually set a hundred years in the future on a Chinese Mars colony. And I, and I was trying to make that the most hopeful, even though it may be the most dystopian in terms of setting and to try to find a character who could still find hope and resilience. Um, even when you're a worker stuck in a space colony on Mars. Right. Well, this is tomorrow in Shanghai, not today in Shanghai. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's the metaphor. Yeah. That's yeah. Yes. Um, so you anticipated some of my questions here. Uh, one of which was what role did per- current events play in the crafting of the stories? And, and you've made that clear, but what sort of um, themes were you hoping to explore in the stories? You know, for example, uh, th- there's a mother daughter theme in one of them. Uh, there's a, uh, one of the stories deals with the organ trade. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what sort of themes you were going to explore in the stories. Um, I can think about, I can maybe talk about how I put the stories together, the kind of way I wanted the themes to come together as a journey for the reader. So the first story, um, which is the title story is um, based on, you know, news reports that I've read. It's um there was really, there was in China, um, these mobile blood units, these blood merchants who would go to rural areas um, in central China, and they would buy people's plasma. And they would then collect it, and then they would bring it to city hospitals, and they would sell it to the hospitals. And this was, you know, a condoned practice. Um, China needed blood, didn't really have a donor uh, culture back in the 80s. And they don't have do- they don't have 90- donation centers in China. They do now. Oh, they but do back now. Back in the yeah. 80s and 90s, yeah. that you know they were just coming out of. I've this donated place. blood and plasma. I mean, it's very well yeah. worked out in the United States. Yeah, go yes. ahead. Yes, and it is now in China. But in those days, they were trying to. It, there wasn't really this practice. It wasn't culturally um, known yet, and so they had these. They didn't have enough blood, so they would go to rural areas. And they figure, well, people need money, so we'll offer to buy it, and so it will overcome some stigma. But what, unfortunately, um, the so-called blood merchants, Shueto, didn't know was that um, they didn't have a strong science background. Like they, they were hired to do this. It's a rough job. You got to go on these backcountry roads that didn't have the highway system. China now has a wonderful highway system. It has, you know, wonderful mass transit, much better than the United States. But back in the day, as China was just opening up to the world after decades of isolation, not so much. So they also didn't have regular uh, electricity, right? So they didn't, they weren't able to sterilize their equipment. Um, and so, hmm. and so in addition to not being able to sterilize the equipment properly, some of the so-called blood merchants didn't know better and they re-injected blood after they had taken spun out the plasma, they would re-pool it and just divide it evenly and re-inject it into the farmers who had sold their blood as a way to kind of restore their energy quicker. Well, that led to an HIV uh, epidemic, um, which led to an AIDS epidemic. 
Um, and so then when the gov- when the central government found out what was, going, what was going on, they then made it illegal to do this, what had been a perfectly legal job, and then they started executing the blood merchants. So the story starts off with a man who has ended up, he's being charged with a crime that he didn't even know he was committing, and he's being sentenced to death. And at the same time, there's a surgeon who's been hired, which again was legal back in the day, to extract his organs so that those organs of the executed prisoner can then be used. And in this case, mm-hmm. he's, the surgeon is doing kind of a side job, so it's not really going into like an official organ pool, but somebody um, in the hospital is selling it on the side. And so we see this kind of, and that is that has also been, there's been congressional testimony about this. So I know that this occurred. So I wrote a story and trying to think about like, well, what are the forces that that make people do these things? You could just say, wow, that's so terrible. But really it's the same, it's the same difference, right? The, the poor blood merchant needed money. It was a job. It's a terrible job, but it was a job he could do and did do. Same thing. The surgeon is rationalizing, you know, well, you know, it's terrible, to, you know, extracting the organs from executed prisoners, but it's a job and somebody's got to do it. Um, and so it might as well be he, he and he figures he needs the money. Um, and they just, you know, and so the idea of this is, again, these, these pressures that people are on under capitalism and, and to make as much money to survive or to thrive. And that makes people um, sometimes do terrible things. And so the first story is I call the story of the path of least resistance, right? Because people do, you know, there's, for the poor guy who's being executed, there was nothing else he could do. He's, you know, at the end of the road for him. For the surgeon, he's just going along, right? He could choose not to do it, but he's choosing to because it helps him. And then as we go to the stories, um, like the mother-daughter stories, they're facing a lot of tension. It's a They've been facing some racism in a small town. It's a white mother and uh, a mixed-race Asian-American daughter, Asian-presenting daughter. And the mother has remained silent, um, in the face of this racism, the family has experienced and the daughter has been like, just trying to reach out and can't understand why the mother is silent. And part of it is it's how they've been raised. It's part of how they experience life. It's part, you know, and it's, and it's like, can I, can I have them reach a point where they get to an understanding? And if you read, you know, in the story, they do get to an understanding. It's not this understanding that either of them wanted, but it is, a kind of understanding. And then as we go forward, we get more and more characters kind of trying to reach out, trying to overcome these differences. And um, the last story I hope is the most hopeful. Can you talk a little bit about it? That's the, that's the one set on Mars. It's the Mars one. Yes. That's Mars story. And that's called the nanny. And that was actually also inspired by current events. Um, it's, I wrote this one during the pandemic and I was, we had in San Francisco gone in a partial lockdown. We had a, curfew um, and like malls and um, many public places were shut, were closed. People weren't allowed to congregate. And so on next door, if you're familiar with that kind of listserv, it's a neighborhood listserv. People were frantically, wealthy people were frantically talking about their nanny situations. So like now nannies were not coming to work, so they needed a nanny or else they were going to leave the city and go to like a summer home or a second home and they wanted a nanny to come with them or they were leaving and leaving nanny behind and they actually call their nannies nanny. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Um, Who knew? Um, And so there were all these ads going up on um, next door. And it was really interesting for me, you know, not 
part of this kind of culture to read what they wanted the nannies to do. And man, that is a whole lot of work. And, you know, they were saying, oh, we don't, you know, nanny will not have to do maid work. You know, they have someone else do that, but just some lighthouse work and some light cooking and fixing these snacks and then schlepping their child here and there for all their lessons and you know, schools had gone online. So not to school, but to all these lessons. And, and then, and then one person even wanted like the nanny, not only to take care of the toddler during the day, but to sleep train their infant. And I was like, Oh my God, that is horrible. That is a really, that's a nasty job. So I, and at the same time, there was an older, there were starting to be all these anti-Asian attacks. And there were a number of attacks on kind of older um, Asian women, both in, got national attention, both in San Francisco and in New York, in which, you know, men, younger men just came up and punched them or stabbed them and, or in one case, murdered um, oh, an older a Chinese woman. And in San Francisco, there was a case of a Toysanese woman who was um, just waiting for the Muni bus and a younger man came up and just punched her. And she was so shocked, but she had the wherewithal. She picked up a piece of debris on the street and hit him back <laughs> and broke his nose. So when the ambulance came, the EMT looked at them and took the man and left her, yeah. left her on the side of the road because he couldn't understand what she was saying. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, I wanted to write a story about a nanny. And they would address these issues of just kind of like the workload and violence and being scapegoated, but I just couldn't bring myself to write it in the present because it was so depressing to me as this was ongoing. So then around this time, I was watching, I've been watching on Twitter, the the Chinese lunar probe, the Jade Rabbit YouTube. Have you seen that? And it was broadcasting all these really interesting images of the so-called dark side of the moon. And so that's when I thought, oh, now I know. And so I decided, you know, China has this really advanced uh, space program. They have said that, you know, they want to have a, a space station. They've also, you know, they have also, I think have said, you know, that eventually someday they want to go to Mars. And so I just thought, let's just, let's just have that happen. And so I decided to set it on Mars in the future and have my nanny working there. And it yeah. was just enough removed from the present. So I could have the same issues of like the workload and some issues of workplace violence, but in a fantastical science fictional setting so that um, I don't have to be depressed by, <laughs> depressed by it in the moment. And I can think of how can I show resistance um, within this family, within this workplace setting. So that's where that it, story came from. Yeah. Uh, it, in a lot of the stories, it seems like people have trouble being or finding a home. They don't ever seem to be settled. They're, ne- they're never there. Like, okay, here I am in front of my TV eating whatever I'm eating with my family and it's all really nice and it sounds good. There's never any moment like that in the stories. It's, it's kind of. No, everyone's still looking me. for their home. Yeah. It's, everyone is looking for some place to be. Can you talk a little bit about that? For a safe place to consider home. And part of that was just from, I guess my own feelings. Cause I said, I started these stories after Trump was elected and I just didn't feel safe. I didn't feel safe anywhere. It just, it just, I feel many of us felt that way, right? It just felt like, mm-hmm. our, what is this country? What's happening? But where do we go? Where is going to be safe? And so you eventually you just have to stay and fight, right? You know? right. You're nowhere safe because it's spreading around the world. So I felt like that definitely influenced the stories I was writing. And then also from my own background, as I had said, you know, when I, when we moved to South Dakota, when I was 12, it was not safe. We never, I never felt safe there for a moment. Um, we tried to move. We couldn't sell our house. So we were stuck there for many, many years. 
And I, we're always thinking like, where can we go? Where can we go? Where will be safe? And as you and I had discussed, we've, you know, you've lived a lot of states and a lot of countries. I've lived in a lot of states, a lot of countries. So I've continually in my own life been trying to find that safe place that I can call home. And I think that that is, you know, for my characters, part of being in diaspora, part of being immigrants or migrants. And that's also why the title is Tomorrow in Shanghai. As one character says, well, tomorrow, tomorrow in Shanghai, things will be better. It's that idea that, you know, there will be, it will be better sometime in the future. And there will be this place like Shanghai in, in China is always considered the most magical, most, you know, cosmopolitan, um, in some ways, the most desirable city, at least for the 20th and earlier 21st century, certainly before the pandemic, Shanghai was it, you know. And um, so for me, it's this kind of aspirational place, but it's always in the future, right? It's always yeah. tomorrow. It's not right now. Well, I, I find something kind of, I, I, I don't know want to generalize my experience, but something kind of American about it in the sense that I, th I think the longest I've ever lived in one place was about six years. <laughs> I, I, I really move around a lot and a lot of people in sort of my circle do as well. And, and we're, look, we're looking, but we're not finding. We're uprooting ourselves and moving to do something. That's so interesting you say that because that was also my, I think that was also my experience. Six years was the maximum. I, um, as a kid, you know, we moved when I was six, we moved when I was 12, and then I left when I was 18. So every six years. Yeah. And then, um, and then after that, it was even shorter terms because, you know, I moved for work or I moved for school right. um, or moved for a job as an academic, you know, that, um, and if you want a promotion, you often have to move. And that means moving far away because academic jobs are few and far between. Right, right, right. Well, it contrasts very sharply. I mean, thanks to Facebook, I'm in touch with a lot of people that I went to high school with in Kansas, and they are all still in Wichita. Not all of them, but most of them are. Interesting. And, and, and I, I do wonder about whether I made a mistake. <laughs> what do they do? Uh, you know, they uh, are plumbers and they work in businesses and they're lawyers and actually, yeah, they work in companies of various sorts. There's aircraft manufacturing in, in Wichita. A good friend of mine is a, an accountant at one of these aircraft factories. And, you know, they went to the local university and they came back to Wichita and they stayed there and very nice people. And it's very different than my life, though. I, I have to say it's it's. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want to project onto them a feeling of being settled, but I don't really feel comfortable with that. For all I know, they're not as settled as, as they are geographically settled. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I mean, their lives are probably as full of turmoil as everybody else's life. Yeah. It's interesting to know that Wichita has such a great economy that it can sustain, you know, yeah. people, you know, going, you know, going to college, coming back, finding good employment. I Some of the problems that, you know, Again, the place that my family moved to in South Dakota, there were no jobs there. So uh -huh. even I didn't want to go back, but even if I'd wanted to, there would have been no way to sustain a life for myself there. There was no work. And then my family ended up moving to Wyoming. And again, Wyoming, they joke, but it's not really funny. They say their greatest export is are their young people, right? Yeah. Because there's also not a lot of jobs. It's hard to stay unless you yeah. have like land or something. Yeah, I, I can't explain the Wichita economy. It's a pretty big city. It's 300,000 or more people now. And I, I can say that there's a large aircraft manufacturing industry there still to this day. 
And so I, I don't know. I, I have one friend who works in it, but I, I, I don't know exactly what led them to, to stay there. And I don't exactly know what they do. I don't really inquire. Um, but th they did stay and they seem very happy to do this. This may be a kind of unfair question. Are there um, uh, moments in the stories that are drawn directly from your personal experience? Like this happened to me? Um, not in the same way that it happened to me. Right. I mean, writing fiction, I think we all take it. Well, many of us take inspiration from things that happen in life or inspired by life. But as someone who also writes memoir and essays and nonfiction, um, it doesn't always work out really well to take an incident that happened in real life and try to make it into a story. You just if it works, it cannot work in fiction the way it happened in life. It just doesn't. I wish it yeah. would because it'd be so much easier to write, but yeah. it just doesn't. It just, in order to make it fit, it's got to have fiction in it. Whether the characters, they have to be unlike me in some significant way. Um, things have to change in some significant way in order to just work as a story. And I think it's because in life, things don't necessarily have meaning in the moment. No, they don't. They, they just happen. And then something yeah. else happens and something else happens. And so there's like, there would be no ending. And also there'd be no significance. It's only later when you think about it or when you connect it to all these other things. But then to make that happen in a story, you have to compress it um, so that the significance happens for the characters in that moment. Otherwise, why are you reading it? Yeah. Um, and I only found these different. I think I really only became mo aware of this difference when I started writing nonfiction, right, narratively. And then I could see, oh, like, you know, I have written memoir. And so I can put it together chronologically and I can think. And then I don't deviate from what really happened because I'm trying to mine it and I'm trying to figure out what was this meaning. But it usually takes longer. Um, and in an essay, I have to step forward more, really, as a narrator and to explain why I'm putting the episodes. I have to have that voice weaving it in. If I just, in nonfiction, just presented the moment, it'd be like a crime story, right? And it's like, it's the it's the flash spot news, yeah. but you don't get to the deeper significance. Well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I, when I think about what I remember about my life, it's a collection of anecdotes. It's just episodes that happen. They don't really have any meaning. It's like, this happened. This was the time I spilled a Coke on my grandma. You know, it doesn't have any meat. It just happened. And I remember because it was terrible. <laughs> I got in a lot of trouble because I spilled an entire cup of Coke on my grandma. But it's just a huge collection of those things without kind of rhyme or reason. And I don't know how I could ever weave them into some sort of story. They just happened. And they are like spot news in that way. But I mean, but you can, right? I, I mean, could, it's like, yeah, it's like I could. what historians do, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, tell very long stories. That is yeah. that is exactly what we do. Go through a lot of spot news, a lot of incidents, but I think you have to come with like a, a theme, and so you know which spot incidents to describe, which are relevant, and which don't fit the theme. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time. I do have one final question, though. I was just rereading um, Tolstoy's short stories. I don't know why I read these things, but I, I enjoyed them. I was introduced to them at Grinnell College. So I'd like to say thank you, Mr. Mohan. Um, and I'm interested to know whether the short stories you write ever end up as novels or something longer. Are you ever tempted to say, okay, I'm taking this one all the way this time? I did do that with um, a short story I wrote called Saving Sotie. And it was, I turned it into the novel 
Dragon Chica, which then spawned another novel, Tiger Girl, which won the Asian um, Asian Pacific American Award for Literature from the um, the Asian American Pacific Islander branch of the ALA, American Librarian Association. So that not only that short story not only became a novel, it became two novels. Yeah, yeah. So is there a temptation in writing short stories to to make them long stories, so to say? <laughs> As someone who also writes novels, it's like you know. Um, sometimes I think about it, but I also sometimes I think that this is the key moment, right? And so if this is the key moment, does I, do I need, do I need more? I mean, there's other things that could happen. Like it, within this collection, I have two short stories with, um, from different points in the character's life. Mm. So they're, they're linked stories. And I mean, what I could, I could keep going. One could always keep going, but I didn't feel inspired to do so in this particular time. Mm -hmm. I see. So we have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Oh, what am I working on now? I'm working on an essay collection, and I'm working on a novel. So. Any, I, can't, I won't say anything more about that. You're not going to say anything more. No, you're going to leave done, people so. in suspense. That's good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Mei Li Chai about uh, her new collection of short stories, Tomorrow in Shanghai and Other Stories. It's out this year. Mei Li, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you so much.